Our reading today comes from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. If you would all stand for the reading of the word, please. As I exhorted you when going through Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the stewardship from the God which is faith. But the goal of our command is to love from a pure heart and good conscience and unhypocritical faith. For some, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters which they have made competent assertions. But we know that the law is good, for if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the godless, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, for sexual immoral, immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Uh, as we just read from Holy Scripture, uh, certain ones had crept in at the Church of Ephesus, uh, teaching a different doctrine, and this is why Timothy had been left at the church to deal with this specific issue. It is important to be clear, uh, because of different doctrine or false doctrine, uh, the men of this church have come together to start a new church. Um, because we know, they know, in their own lives and backgrounds, the disease of false doctrine, not including from church history alone. Um, let me clearly define false doctrine or heresy and I like to use R.C. Sproul's defining of terms for literary heresy or historical heresy. So first off, to start, doctrine uh, is simply teaching or a line of teaching. Sound or orthodox doctrine would be a teaching that is in straight line with whatever the source is, in our case, Scripture and Christ. A literal false doctrine based on that definition or a literal heresy is technically anything off of that absolute zero, off of that line. Um, we use the uh, example of a plumb line. A plumb line is used in construction or engineering. It's ultimately a line that hangs down with a weighted um, end, and that weighted end points to absolute zero. Um, without the plumb line, when you're in building or construction, you can get off in literally 360 degrees. Your walls can be all crooked in every direction, and that is why the plumb line was used. Christ is that perfect plumb line, and he was described as such in Amos. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a wall made with a plumb line, and his hand was a plumb line. And Yahweh said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will pass over them no longer. Amos 7, 7 through 8. Christ didn't just proclaim to know and speak the truth. He claimed to be it. Um, when we follow Christ rightly through his word, we are performing sound doctrine or correct teaching. Um, and how you identify false doctrine is by placing sound doctrine next to false doctrine. And that's how you can see the difference between the two. Based on the definition of literal false doctrine or literal heresy, all of us have the ability at that point to do false doctrine, to do heresy, because we are sinners. So we have the ability to get it wrong. We have the ability to think wrong, believe wrong 
that's that's the definition of literal. The second definition is the one that most people are common with, which is a historical definition of false doctrine or historical heresy. In this definition, everything about the plumb line remains the same. Anything off of absolute zero is considered false. But the added caveat to this is someone intentionally trying to lead others astray. Um, and that's the one we're most common, commonly used is, is, again, you're trying to lead others astray. And more often than not, it's for monetary gain or status gain. That's generally the reason that people do this. Um, and so generally when people use the term heresy or false doctrine, they're using the historical reference that it is somebody intentionally trying to move somebody off of that mark. Um, when I'm using it through the rest of the sermon, it's going to be that historical use of that term. Um, just be aware of the other term. And I, I tell people that because you could technically call a brother in Christ a heretic or heresy anytime they make a mistake, but I would warn strongly against that because of the other term. But by definition, anytime you're off the mark, you are doing false doctrine, you are doing heresy. Um, the people of God have always been plagued with false doctrine, and we will be no different. Um, false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, false Christ um, have always worked to infiltrate the church. Um, since Adam and Eve were in the garden, at the foot of Mount Carmel, right after being saved um, from Egypt uh, in the first century, while the apostles were still alive, um, people have always worked to get into the church and bring in false doctrine. Um, Peter calls false teaching a damnable and destructive heresy, which lead men to destruction. Um, false doctrine is an absolute disease upon this earth. And with the rise of secularism, uh, postmodern thinking, thinking it has been one of the worst diseases we have ever seen and has led to the death of millions upon millions, not including those that have pushed even farther away from the truth because it's such an absolute bad doctrine. In Paul's own words, he describes false doctrine, and their word will spread like gangrene. 2 Timothy 2.17a, gangrene, if you're not familiar with that disease, we don't see it as much now but it is a rotting disease of the tissue and it rots slowly. Um, with the pathology of diseases, some diseases take you very quickly, um, but most diseases take you very slowly. And this is what happens is the disease gets in and it slowly kills you and eats away at you from the inside out until there's nothing left but a living corpse that finally takes its last breath. That's what gangrene is. That's what false doctrine is. And that is why I've titled this message, The Disease of a Different Doctrine. Um, it might take you instantly, but different doctrines generally will take you slowly over time and it will rot away. Um, a major warning with false doctrine, failure to recognize false doctrine in the early stages almost always results in spiritual decay and it's rarely been able to be repaired as a late cure um, once it takes time. And, and, and to give examples of this, a blue-haired female false pastor who exchanges natural relations for lustful, unnatural ones or an immoral priesthood that preys on young children. That doesn't just happen in churches. That happens because the slow decay of false doctrine that over time consumes an entire generation. Um, and we have entire denominations that need to repent, not just individuals, entire denominations, entire churches, um, that ultimately right now they worship at the synagogue of Satan uh, spoken about in Revelations 2 and 3. That's how pervasive false doctrine is. Um, 
False doctrine and heresy is so much of a disease. John in his second epistle warns don't even bring heretics into your house because they will infect your house. And don't take the chance of them infecting one person in your house because it will destroy your house from the inside out. Um, Satan in our very own natures of sin has always worked to muddy or confuse the world so they can't perceive the clear truth of God. Um, Satan's first lie was a simple question. Hath God say? And the meaning of that was, Eve, do you know the truth? Because I know it. And I probably know it better than you do. Do you know it? Um, don't forget, Satan knows the truth. He has met him personally. Now, he doesn't submit to him. and He rejects him. But he knows him nonetheless. And in some ways knows him better than we do. Um, Satan does two things with the truth. He questions it and he distorts it. That's his, that's his game. The funny thing is, is through sin, we do the same thing. We ultimately question God's law, and we try and distort it for our own benefit. Only through Scripture uh, do we have the ability to teach truth, to test what is true, correct falsehoods to truth, to grow in righteousness and truth. Satan uses false doctrine in two ways, and they're both described in Matthew 13. The first way is he can snatch the gospel seed before it can go into the ground, and we see that in the parable of the soils. Um, so Satan comes along and he snatches that seed away before anybody can understand what's going on, and that's corrupting the gospel on the front end. The second way he does it is Satan um, works to sow in the tares among the wheat in that parable, and that is bringing false believers and false doctrine inside the church after you already have established believers and established doctrine. That is how he gets you on the back end. So the front end, he tries to snatch away before you even really have salvation. On the back end, he tries to bring false doctrine and false believers um, into the churches in that way. On the front end, generally, where the false doctrine lies is almost always in salvation because that's the easiest way to keep people out from getting saved is to mess with that doctrine. Um, R.C. Sproul pointed out uh, when it comes to the message of salvation, we're ultimately arguing over a single word, and that word is alone. We are saved by grace alone. Not grace. Grace alone. Through faith alone. Not faith plus something. Faith alone. In Christ alone. Not Christ in the church. Christ alone. Um, and let me say plainly here, there are two religions the religion of the holy, holy God that sent his one and only son to be a ransom for his sheep. And the second is anything else, which are of the devil. And that is important to remember. Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, Hindus, Jews, and anything else in that category, they are all false. They are all doomed to hell without repentance in Christ and faith in him. So what about the religions that actually use the name of Jesus? First one uh, that comes to mind is the Mormons. First of all, they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, nor part of the triune God. They believe he obtained salvation and became a miniature God of his own through perfect works. False. They are false. They are a false religion that worships Satan. And sadly, most of them don't even know that. Um, Eastern Orthodox and Catholics, they use the closest language to us, um, so much so that um, you can be worshiping as a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, and they will say that we're worshiping the same thing. They use the same terms, grace, faith, Christ, Trinity, but there's differences in all of them. They believe 
grace of God, but not grace alone. They believe grace plus the sacraments, grace plus the church, grace plus being a good person, grace plus something else you're adding to it. The same is with faith. Faith is not something you receive from God. Faith is something that you do in order to gain your salvation. And they will say, no, no, I'm saved by grace through faith, just like you. But what they actually mean is it's grace plus faith equals salvation, whereas ours is grace alone equals salvation. You do nothing to earn that. And we're not even getting into the heretical adding to the books of Scripture, the continuance of the office of priesthood that was fulfilled by Christ himself, uh, heavily uh, documented in Hebrews. The, the worst doctrine, though, I think, in the church today, without a doubt, is Pelagian theology, Pelagian doctrine. And I don't have a time to go through most of it, but this doctrine is so pervasive in the Protestant, Protestant churches today that it does one of two things. It either full outright claims that you can attain grace completely through works and therefore grace is not needed. Or secondly, that you are going to be the one seeking after the grace. Um, you are going to be the one that asks God for his grace. And this this example is like the little orphan Oliver asking, please, sir, can I have some more grace? That's the aspect of this theology. But dead men seek no one. Dead men ask nothing. Dead men decompose. It's the only thing dead men can do. Decompose. At least the Catholic Church declared Pelagius theology an absolute heresy back in the three and four hundreds and put Pelagius and his heresy to death until the 1600s where the Protestants went ahead and dug it back up and they have streamlined it to most of the Protestant um, denominations. Methodists uh, took it fully. They are by method saved. That's why they're called the Methodists. Seeker sensitive, it's the same thing. Um, you are the one that seeks after the charismatics um, and then countless other non-denominal churches all embrace that foolish uh, Pelagian theology that is a false doctrine in our day. Um, and this is the disease of false doctrine. It works its way into everything, everything comes into contact with, and it ultimately pollutes it. On the back end of false doctrine, false doctrine is generally attacked uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, which is the sufficiency of the doctrine of God himself. And they try and do that on the back end. Uh, John MacArthur brilliantly pointed out there's eight ways that the sufficiency of Scripture is attacked, and it repeats over and over again. Um, it's the same false doctrine, essentially, with a different cosmetic on top of it, but it, it's these eight that repeat. The first one is Gnosticism. God is good. Matter is evil. There's a secret, secret higher knowledge that you need to, to gain in order enough to be smart enough to gain your, your grace. Uh, the second one would be mysticism. There's a hidden special experience that you need to obtain. Um, you generally hear people say, I feel this, I've had an experience, a dream, God told me. Um, that's mysticism. Agnosticism is a person who believes that nothing can be known about the existence or nature of God uh, beyond the phenomena. Uh, the fourth being behaviorism. Uh, behavior uh, is a reflex of their environment, generally the environment that they grew up in. So if you can change their environment, you can change their behavior. Um, this is a common approach that psychology and secularism uses right now in our day. Um, the fifth is humanism. Uh, you put the prime importance on the human rather than the divine. Um, and you see this approach most commonly done in the secret sensitive movement. 
give the people what they want so they come in the door. Uh, that's humanism. Uh, pragmatism, uh, in short, uh, truth is determined by consequences. Whether something is right or wrong is based on the results of that action. Uh, and so the megachurch movement would be a huge advocate of this. It's good because we have thousands upon thousands that come every Sunday. Or um, one that I, I hear and it, it makes my skin crawl is we baptized 300 this year or 30 this month. Or you're, That's all pragmatic. That's all trying to count uh, to base how good you're doing. Number seven, liberalism. It's a movement that interprets Christ's Christian teaching by taking into modern thinking, modern knowledge, modern science. Um, and it emphasizes science and reason over doctrinal authority. Um, the earth is old and evolution is true because the atheist scientist told me so in my secular pagan public school. So let's teach that at the church um, because it must be true if they're teaching it you know, in pagan areas. That's liberalism. That really came in in the 1900s. Uh, asceticism is number eight. Um, it is the practice of self-denial and spiritual discipline. Um, you ultimately are um, abstaining from any kind of self-indulgence. Uh, you see this in any kind of monk, priest, nun, whether that's Ethan Orthodox, Catholic, Hindu, Buddhist, any of that, that is all asceticism. So whether false doctrine on the front end or the back end occurs, it's not as important to remember each one of those ways. What is important is remember it repeats. It repeats over time and because of foolish men and their sin. And so ultimately all Satan has to do is give it a generation and then he can immediately inject that same false doctrine that was done before and just repeat um, so, because we're getting back to 1 Timothy, I need to add a little more background um, from last week uh, that we didn't have. Um, ultimately, anytime you have a church, you need to be warning them about false doctrine, and that is what I'm doing here. And Paul did this as well. Approximately eight years before leaving Timothy in Ephesus, um, at the start of our letter, he wrote to the Ephesian church in the 20th chapter of Acts, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that the night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Acts 20, 28-31. Paul knew then, as I'm telling you now, false prophets and false doctrine will always come. It's not a matter of if, it's always a matter of when. And the question truly is, are you going to be ready for it, or are you going to be able to see it um, you know, before it happens? Secondly, uh, in, in history, Paul had actually already dealt with false doctrine um, in the Galatian church. Uh, the issue in Galatia was a special one, and it would have been very early in his ministry, early in his early writings. And so even though he had established churches in Galatia and had genuine believers, they had been influenced by being bewitched as true believers, which is one of the special cases that was documented in uh, Galatians. And so initially when the Apostle Paul came to Galatia, they received the gospel as he preached it. Um, they fully embraced it, and then they became bewitched and fell into false doctrine. And that false doctrine in Galatia was the law for the works of salvation. So Paul warned the church um, eight years prior to this letter, 
and he had to already deal with the issue in Galatia, which Timothy would have been a part of and been aware of and more than likely had read his letter um, to them. There also uh, were some major issues in Corinthians, both of those, and I don't have the time to go through both of those letters, but he had already dealt with false doctrine at that time again. And so right before this letter is written, a year before, once again, Paul warns the Ephesian church so that we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Ephesians 4.14. As Paul visited Ephesus and he found the problem, uh, he removed the two false prophets and he maidens them in verse 20 of 1 Timothy. Among, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1.20. Um, and so you have two men that Paul calls these are of the, excuse me, are of the devil. Are of the devil. Um, the source of false doctrine in the church originated in these two men. And so Paul is naming them. That is to give Timothy the ability to know where this doctrine came from, who it came from, and call them by name. Um, as a side note, um, anytime somebody would argue, don't point out false doctrine, don't point them out by name, um, I would ask them nicely, kindly, um, have you read any of Paul's letters? Uh, because he most certainly did call them by name. So now as we get to verse 3, and we've had all that past, the false doctrine coming up, verse 3 has started, remain on at Ephesus. And so this is after he's removed these two false pastors and elders, mind you. These are actual teachers in the church. These are elders. These are not just two random people. And what he's done is he's removed those two, and he's planted Timothy in as the pastor and elder for that church. Um, the rest of the verses uh, in, in from 3 through 11 uh, they are basically a back and forth of sound doctrine versus false doctrine and ultimately how to identify it and how to treat it as you go. Continuing in verse 3, um, so that you may command certain ones. Uh, many translations will have instruct or instruction, uh, but that term is not uh, correct. It's too timid. Um, done properly, commands are given in a rank structure similar to the military. In, in that format, a command does not have to be right to be justly given because the higher rank is given that by authority. That's the military aspect. When we get into biblical commands, um, biblical commands are given because you stand with the authority of Scripture, which therefore gives you the authority of the living God. In this setting, Timothy has both. And that is the point that Paul is making to him, and he's reminding him of, of that. You know, Paul or Timothy reports directly to Paul who is the apostle and the elder over that particular church. Timothy is the head of that church, and he is now above all of them. And so they've been removed, so they're not even in the rank structure anymore, and they were uh, putting false doctrine. So they are wrong on both cases, and Timothy is over them. And so he says, command them. He's not asking to go have a nice conversation with everybody in the church or with these men, try and come to an agreement or compromise, or worst case, agree to disagree, command them. That is Timothy's um, call. The last part of verse 3 is teach a different doctrine. In the Greek, it's heterodaspagaleo. We get the term heterox um, from. Uh, orthodox teaching, again, is that straight plumb line. It's with the plumb sword. A heterox is generally thought to be just off the mark or slightly crooked. 
there have been some that will define heterox as just barely off the mark, and then heresy is turned all the way around. And so heresy is way off, heterox is barely off. It doesn't really matter as far as that's concerned. False is false. If you're off the mark, you're off the mark. However, if you do use heterox that way, in a way, it is more dangerous because it's closer to the truth and it looks more like the real thing. Um, and this is described in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, as we get into verse 4, endless genealogies. Uh, this, again, was the false doctrine of the Jewish Pharisaical law that by birthright, circumcision, and following the law perfectly, is salvation obtained. Um, he wrote Titus about this as well, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then the last part of verse four um, is about the stewardship, specifically the stewardship of God. In the Greek, it's oikonomia, my brain, sorry, it's running, um, uh, which is the management or overseeing of a household. In this case, the household of God. Um, and so as a pastor, they are stewards of God's people in his house. And Paul is reminding of them and he is telling Timothy, you are the steward of the house of God and everything in it, which includes the people. Whether it's ridiculous beliefs that they have or false teachings of the Jews, none of that profits the house of God. And the only profit would be is a good steward of the faith of God. That's where you need to be a good steward at. As we move into verse 5, um, Paul gives more insight to the command spoken about in verse 3. Um, and this command, the goal, and don't confuse this with tone. So many people confuse um, proper commands done in a proper tone. It's not about tone. It's about the internal aspect of your heart. And that's what this verse is, on, uh, is going over, is love them, but still command them. Um, and the correct... Uh, um, the command done properly is going to be in that love from a pure heart. Part of this is if you fail to command, you will actually result in Timothy loving himself more um, than those in need of correction. And that's a, an aspect that we get really wrong in the church today. Biblical correction is not easy. And I've seen more friends and family lost over biblical correction than any other type of correction. Um, and worse yet, most professing Christians will not jeopardize their friendship or family member over a loving correction. Um, but this kind of love, when you're doing this correctly, this is the one of a friend who has a disease. And the question is, are you going to point that disease out to them, even if it jeopardizes the friendship or the family member? Or will you let them rot from the inside out slowly? but at least you kept your friend. That's what this verse is about. And this is one of the most difficult aspects for pa uh, pastors, and this is why um, Paul is writing it, because correcting false doctrine in a church is actually painful because more often than not, the false doctrine, they leave the church and they won't listen. Um, and so, uh, but Paul is reminding him that you have to still command them. Do it in love, do it rightly, but command them. Verses 6 and 7, uh, verse 6 is the bounce back of this temptation of false doctrine and keeping false doctrine because it's easier It's easier to keep sinners happy, and, and that temptation is really great on a pastor. And what ends up happening is you, instead of dealing with the false doctrine, you turn to fruitless discussion, 
which this is an idea of, I don't want to deal with the sin. I don't want to actually have to repent. Let's talk about other ways to get people in the church. Let's talk about other things going on that don't matter. And that's why we do it is because we don't want to actually have to deal with the sin that's actually going on. And verse seven is one of the greatest temptations to all pastors, all teachers, uh, whether they're true or false, those that want recognition. They like the title, they like the respect, and they like the applause. Um, And that is a severe temptation, but they don't actually understand the matters about which they make competent assertions, or assertions, excuse me. Um, Do not let many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, James 3.1. Pastors should tremble at the feet um, when they could get something wrong with their flock. It should scare them to their absolute cores. Um, But most care more about the approval of men and the approval of the crowd than they do about getting that approval from God. A true slave of the Lord only cares about one thing, hearing, well done, good and faithful slave. That is what a true slave of God cares about. It's his approval, his care. That's it. In a pastor's life, there's not much more important than biblical study. This is continuing in verse uh, 7, and specifically biblical study for the pastor himself. Um, Because of that sanctifying process, if, if done rightly, the word will truly produce a new individual out of the pastor, and then that will be what he produces in others. And so the end of the verse, this is being addressed by Paul, is, Timothy, do you want to be recognized or do you want to get doctrine correct first for you and then for your flock? And if you fail to get it right for you, without a doubt, you'll get it wrong for the flock. That is what the end of verse 7 is. Um, I thought, and this is a uh, text that goes along with this, Romans 2, 19 through 21 and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Um, That is how he's ending verse 7, is this aspect, you must first learn and then you must first then you must secondly command and command it rightly verse 8 verse 8 Paul is comparing the foolish teachers in verse 7 like the men's in Acts 15 1 some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved um, and that and what verse 8 is trying to do is to correct the correct use of the law and how it's supposed to be used. And this is part of that shorthand that I talked about last week. Um, Paul isn't going to give Timothy every single verse on how to use the law rightly, and, and I'm not either. But just for, for um, speaking sake, um, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are probably the greatest verses on the doctrine of God. God. And Psalm 119 is the longest in the whole Bible. Psalm 19 is essentially a Cliff Notes version of that um, to give you power. And here's just a couple of verses from Psalm 19. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right and rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true, and they are righteous altogether. There are more, they are more desirable than gold, 
even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Psalm 19, 7 through 10. So that's the end of verse 8, is correcting that aspect of how to use the law correctly. When we get into false, or excuse me, um, verses 9 and 10, um, Paul is continuing to answer the false doctrine of the law for salvation. Uh, and this is the practical application he's giving Timothy. And this is the part to understand about the law. The law, the law is not made for righteous persons. That's not what the law is there for. The law is there to punish the wicked. That is what the law is for. Flooding the entire earth, killing the wicked. Destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, killing the wicked. Eliminating the Amalekites, killing the wicked, um, including the king being hacked to pieces by Samuel at the end. That is the law at work. Um, God's law is not there to save, and we don't want it there to save. It's there to punish and destroy the wicked. That's what it's there to do. And even if a human could be born without sin and then not sin at all, the law would stand over them as a cloud waiting for them to sin. That's what the law is there for. Um, and we want the law to be present as believers, not for salvation, but for the ability to know the difference between good and evil. And more importantly, then have the ability to punish evil. That is the reason the law is there. And so Paul is pointing out uh, in these two verses that pastors and teachers who teach salvation by law are not only fools because the law is not there to save, but their teaching is a damning one and for anyone who believes it and follows it. He's taken that out of Jeremiah. For both prophet and priests are polluted. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares Yahweh. Jeremiah 23, 11. As we start getting into verse 11, our last verse, um, Paul ends this discourse um, with him that he has been entrusted himself with the gospel. And so he is now uh, entrusting this as well to Timothy. And that's not the law. That is the gospel. Uh, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1, 11 and 14. Paul is ending verse 11. What he's saying is, Timothy, you have two choices. Preach the gospel or please men. You can't do both. And whichever you do, God is going to judge you. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Romans 2.16 But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing to men, but God who examines our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 so in, in closing this message on false doctrine, one aspect that I think is really important that gets missed in the church is we tend to think false doctrine is the responsibility of the pastors and elders, and that's false. False doctrine is the responsibility of everyone to watch out for it. But what do you look for? First of all, especially in a pastor, when you're looking at a pastor, number one is, is their doctrine sound? That is absolutely number one. The entirety of their doctrine, the entirety of their uh, interpretation, is it unified, is it coherent, coherent, and is it consistent? Or do they have contradictions? Um, do they have inconsistencies? Do they come to Scripture to gain their beliefs, to allow Scripture to tell them what they should believe? Or do they start out with preset beliefs, then come to Scripture and try and make sure that Scripture has their beliefs already inside there? Um, is their view of Scripture high or low? Remember, there's only two views, high or low. There's nothing in between. 
You, and if you think there's something in between, you have a low view of Scripture, guaranteed. Um, do they believe that God needs their help or someone else's help to improve upon Scripture? That's a low view of Scripture. Do they let Scripture out like a roaring, roaring lion, just let it out of the cage and let it do its thing? That's how you can tell what their view of Scripture is. Do they believe in saving a soul? They have some part of that. Do they have a percentage themselves? Does the person being saved have a percentage? How do they believe that occurs? Um, the second aspect to look for is what do they desire? Is it a spiritual desire? Do they desire recognition? Do they desire numbers and growth? Who are they trying to please? Do they desire holiness for all the people? And do they have a loving heart through their message? Thirdly, why? Why are they teaching or preaching? Why do they desire to teach or preach? And this question is so important. Um, this is where you get to see the maturity or immaturity if you're looking correctly when you ask why. I would be cautious of, be weary of the answers where there is any portion of their answer that God needs them or, God, or the church needs them. That's placing themselves in a place that doesn't belong. I would be weary of uh, any answers that have any portion about how they look on the outside, whether it's they've got a, a commanding voice, whether it's they look the right part, whether you know they, they look like the perfect Mr. Rogers, any of those aspects, be careful of those kinds of things. And I would even be cautious of anyone who says, because I am called, because they are using lingo to prove that they should be in that spot. So what do you look for? There are two qualities that I recommend, Scripture recommends, and that the first one is gentleness, and the second one is humility. Gentleness, and be careful of this, gentleness is not weakness. In fact, if you are weak, you cannot obtain gentleness because gentleness is strength or power under control. And this is why Christ is the most gentle. Because there is no room, there is no place, there is no forest, there is nowhere that Christ went that he was not the most powerful person in that, including the day they nailed him to that cross. He was always the most powerful in every setting, but he was also the most gentle. And this is why he went through his um, restoration of Peter. You need to be strong, but you also need to be gentle. And you will always need to be gentle in tending to the sheep. But you will need to be strong when the wolves come, and you will have to have that spine about you. That is the gentleness that I look for in a pastor, and Scripture tells us to look for. The second uh, trait is humility. And it's important to remember, humility can only be obtained by those that were first proud. And you have to recognize that. True humility comes from pain and sorrow. That's where it comes from. That is why Christ is the most humble. Who went through any more pain and sorrow than he did? No one. That is true humility. Be careful of the false humility, uh, humility that has an undertone um, of that. I'm so proud of my humility. I'm so glad all these things happened to me. I'm so this, I'm so that. Watch those things. Look for the men that are broken. And I'm gonna leave this sermon, I, thought this was the greatest text from Scripture on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. 
for you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. Amen.